welcome to Immigration Review, your weekly source for immigration case law updates and insights. I'm your host, Kevin A. Gregg, back again to review the week's presidential immigration cases, rummaging through the decisions so you don't have to. This podcast is sponsored by Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, also known as KKTP, a law firm where I'm also a partner. Whether you are facing an immigration obstacle, a serious injury, or a legal issue in your business, KKTP will aggressively protect your best interests. This podcast is also sponsored by DocketWise, an all-in-one immigration forms and case management solution trusted by thousands of immigration lawyers across the U.S. I really like DocketWise. It makes immigration applications easy by allowing the clients to provide information through simple online questionnaires that are shareable by text or email and available in multiple languages. Not only that, DocketWise provides a comprehensive group of case management features, including invoicing and calendaring, secure messaging, task management, and a lot more. You can learn all about DocketWise and receive a 10% discount on your subscription by heading to docketwise.com immigration review so they know we sent you. And as always, this show does not constitute legal advice and has no bias other than to keep you up to date and to enable you, my dear colleagues, to excel in court. So, without further ado, let's start the review. Welcome, welcome. This week, the Supreme Court heard oral argument in the oft-discussed and super-important Patel case, wherein Ira Kurzban and the firm serve as lead counsel with the law firm Wilmer Hale. Oral argument definitely had my brain swimming, particularly as there are three parties, us, the U.S. government, and a court-appointed attorney, all arguing for different positions. Listen to it yourself in the link provided in the show notes. Also, the Attorney General has referred to himself in unpublished BIA decision, matter of BZR, but it would appear that the Attorney General has in mind, the off-maligned, on the podcast at least, matter of GGS. And that's because the Attorney General requested amicus submissions on, quote, whether mental health may be considered when determining whether an individual was convicted of a particularly serious crime, end quote. Putting aside how I continue to question whether GGS is good law at all, anywhere, it appears that the Attorney General will soon decide whether it was correctly decided, and put my ruminations to rest. On to the fifth! First up is Ibrahim v. Garland, published by the Fifth Circuit on December 6, 2021. This case is about a lot of things, but deep down, it concerns procedures. Mr. Ibrahim is a lawful permanent resident originally from Egypt, but he did a bad thing, and he was convicted under Louisiana Revised Statute Section 1481, which describes, quote, indecent behavior with juveniles, end quote. For the offense, he received a suspended sentence of, quote, five years at hard labor, end quote, not sure what that means, and was required to register as a sex offender. DHS detained him and charged him as removable under INA Section 237A2AIII as an LPR convicted of an aggravated felony, and additionally, INA Section 237A2EI as an LPR convicted of a crime of child abuse. If I'm a betting man, I'd bet the aggravated felony alleged was INA Section 11843A, 
a crime of sexual abuse of a minor. Here's the thing, though. DHS submitted the criminal court minutes to prove the existence of the conviction in Mr. Ibrahim's bond hearing, but not in the removal hearing right afterwards. That was a mistake, as the Fifth Circuit acknowledges, because bond and removal proceedings are separate and apart. They're supposed to be treated like completely separate hearings, even though the two hearings occur back-to-back, always, by the same immigration judge. But technically, when the IJ sustained Mr. Ibrahim's removability right after the bond hearing, the IJ, technically, was doing it based on nothing, because no criminal documents had been submitted in the separate removal proceedings. They had only been submitted in the bond hearing. Sounds silly, but it's actually kind of a big deal. In the removal proceedings, with removability sustained, Mr. Ibrahim then applied to readjust to LPR status with an INA Section 212H waiver. But he didn't file the, quote, paperwork on time, end quote, and an IJ declined to grant him a continuance. So the IJ ordered Mr. Ibrahim removed to Egypt. That all was then remanded back to the IJ by the BIA. On remand, a different immigration judge vacated the aggravated felony finding based on the Supreme Court's then-recently-published Esquivel-Quintana decision, a complicated issue for another day on the podcast. But then that second IJ sustained a new removability charge that alleged Mr. Ibrahim had committed a crime involving moral turpitude, or CIMT, within five years of admission to the United States. So he's removable again. And after that, A third IJ took up the adjustment of status with the waiver application. But that third IJ realized the other IJ's error in relying on a conviction without having admitted the records into removal proceedings. And so that IJ held that DHS had actually failed to establish Mr. Ibrahim's removability in the first place. I guess that means the IJ terminated proceedings? But in the alternative, I guess, Mr. Ibrahim testified, and the IJ found that the conviction was neither an aggravated felony nor a CIMT, and granted Mr. Ibrahim's application for a waiver and to adjust to LPR status again. This case is getting cray. The BIA remanded pretty much everything again, and then an IJ ordered Mr. Ibrahim removed from the United States. It all came up to the Fifth Circuit. And the Fifth Circuit affirmed removal but not before issuing some favorable holdings on issue exhaustion, so read the case if you've got the argument in the Fifth Circuit. But again, on the merits, though, the Fifth Circuit affirmed. First, the issue of the conviction records, which it looks like were still never submitted in the removal case itself, notwithstanding both remands. The Fifth Circuit held that even if the IJ erred in relying on Mr. Ibrahim's testimony alone as proof that he had been convicted, and the Fifth Circuit isn't so sure, The error was harmless, because an IJ could have taken administrative notice of the criminal court minutes, and so there is no, quote, realistic possibility that the BIA would change its mind on remand, end quote. Mr. Ibrahim also argued that the IJ and the BIA erred in concluding, on remand, that the way-back-when crime of child abuse removability finding under INA Section 237A2EI was the law of the case, and therefore unchallengeable on remand. But even if it was error for the BIA to so find, and again, the Fifth Circuit isn't so sure, it was harmless, because Mr. Ibrahim never meaningfully challenged this third separate removability finding before the IJ. So the BIA, quote, would almost certainly have held that he forfeited his challenge to it, end quote. Therefore, the Fifth Circuit won't remand for additional consideration. 
Mr. Ibrahim, therefore, did not succeed. Kind of a mess. Here's an attempt at some clarity on at least one portion of it. A bit confusing, to say the least. And it might not be intuitive. And while the decision doesn't explain, here's why Mr. Ibrahim was technically potentially eligible to readjust to LPR status, notwithstanding the fact that he had just lost his LPR status for being convicted of an aggravated felony and crime of child abuse. INA Section 245A permits individuals, such as all LPRs, who have been inspected and admitted, to adjust to LPR status so long as they are admissible to the U.S. Now, even though an aggravated felony and crime of child abuse are both serious removability offenses, they're found at INA Section 237, not Section 212, the section that harbors the grounds of inadmissibility. Put another way, an aggravated felony, for example, will make an individual removable but not necessarily inadmissible and not necessarily ineligible to adjust to LPR status unless that aggravated felony also matches the definition of an inadmissibility ground. Now, many aggravated felonies, likely including Mr. Ibrahim's, match the definition of a crime involving moral turpitude, and the CIMT inadmissibility provision is found at Section 212, so it does make a non-citizen inadmissible. But... An INA Section 212H waiver waives a CIMT ground of inadmissibility, provided certain other circumstances are met. Here, Mr. Ibrahim likely had a U.S. citizen spouse or child and claimed that his removal would cause that individual extreme hardship. So he had a path to stay. But INA Section 212H bars the waiver if the non-citizen applying has been convicted of an aggravated felony. So back to square one, right? Well, not really, because after a bunch of litigation over the course of like a decade, everyone including the BIA agrees that the aggravated felony bar to an INA Section 212H waiver only applies if the non-citizen was admitted to the United States as an LPR and was then convicted of the aggravated felony. If, as appears to be the case here and as with many LPRs, the non-citizen's initial entry into the U.S. was not as an LPR, for example as a student or a tourist, then the aggravated felony bar to a Section 212H waiver doesn't apply. It still can be denied as a matter of discretion, as it looks like it was here, but it's available. Immigration, everyone. And that is Ibrahim v. Garland. Finally, we have Chavez Shalil, the Attorney General of the U.S., published by the Third Circuit on December 9th, 2021. This case is about gender-based asylum claims and efficient notices to appear. Ms. Chavez Shalil is from Guatemala, entered the United States without authorization, and was placed in removal proceedings. The NTA that initiated these proceedings lacked the date, time, and location of her first hearing, but of course, the follow-up notice of hearing had that information. After Pereira, she filed a motion to terminate based on the deficient NTA, which the IJ denied pre-Nish Chavez. In the removal proceedings in chief, Ms. Chavez Shalil brought claims for asylum and related relief. She claimed asylum based on her membership in one particular social group only, quote, Guatemalan women, end quote. She testified that she had been raped by the same man at least twice as a teenager in Guatemala, and that police took no action when she reported it. She, naturally, feared the man who raped her. The IJ held that the particular social group was not cognizable, and the BIA affirmed, therefore denying asylum relief. 
The IJ did, however, grant Ms. Chavez Shillow protection under the Convention Against Torture. So while she doesn't have a path to a green card, only asylum provides that, it does appear that she's not going anywhere anytime soon. Ms. Chavez Shalil, however, appealed the asylum denial, as was her right, and the Third Circuit affirmed the BIA. First, the deficient NTA stuff. Obviously, the Third Circuit is reviewing the issue posed in Chavez, but the Third Circuit affirmed that termination was nevertheless not required. Now first, and not for nothing, the court recognized that INA Section 239A is, quote, akin to a claims processing rule, end quote, which is really the first step to termination in the other circuits that have held termination possible based on deficient NTAs. But the Third Circuit then appears to take the position, unlike the Seventh and the Tenth Circuits, for example, that DHS's compliance with the claims processing rule is not necessarily mandatory. Rather, quote, equitable considerations inform whether technical noncompliance requires particular relief, end quote, in a specific case. At least it's a standard in equity to be argued in a motion in every case. In any event, the Third Circuit believed the deficient NTA, quote, harmless, end quote, in this case because the subsequent notice of hearing contained all the required information, and she actually received cat protection which really is better than termination of proceedings in most cases, notwithstanding the fact that technically it results in a final order of removal. Put another way, the Third Circuit held that Ms. Chavez Shalil didn't establish prejudice as a result of any claims processing rule violation. The Third Circuit included a very long footnote distinguishing recent case law discussed on the podcast, submitted by counsel in the 28J letter after briefing concluded. So counsel certainly threw the kitchen sink at the court, but the Third Circuit just didn't agree. Turning then to asylum. The court upheld the IJ and BIA's determination that Guatemalan women just doesn't cut it as a particular social group under immigration law, at least on this record. Devastating. To do so, the Third Circuit held that the group simply isn't particular enough, as it's not sufficiently precise. Further devastating, and in my opinion, would contradict the Fourth Circuit's definition of particularity in Amaya v. Rosen, discussed on episode 40 of the podcast. It also flat out contradicts, as the Third Circuit recognizes in a footnote, the Ninth Circuit's 2010 decision in Perdomo v. Holder, which had recognized the potential viability of the group All Women in Guatemala. I refuse to gong again. To the Third Circuit, the particularity analysis failed here because, quote, there is no record evidence that all Guatemalan women share a unifying characteristic that results in them being targeted for any form of persecution based solely on their gender, end quote. And actually, the Third Circuit does recognize, as the Seventh Circuit has, that, quote, the size of the group standing alone would not disqualify a group from being a particular social group, end quote. But in this case, and based on Ms. Chavez Shalil's record and her testimony, the gender-based group is not sufficiently particular, which again is one of the three requirements to establish that a group qualifies as a particular social group under immigration law. Ms. Chavez Shalil will therefore remain in the United States, but not with asylum. Back to deficient NTAs and termination, just for a second. In a long footnote, the Third Circuit notes that one of the applicable regulations to this whole NTA termination issue 
only appears to require that the time and place of the first removal hearing be included in an NTA where practicable, and that, quote, as there was no showing that providing a date and time in the NTA at the time it was issued to Chavez Shalil was practicable, the NTA here contained all the required components, end quote. Putting aside that such a rule appears to flip the burdens in a way that doesn't make sense to me, it also appears that possibly, through DHS statistics and other publicly available materials, not to mention some pretty pithy circuit quotes in recent months, we practitioners may be able to show that indeed, it is practicable for DHS to provide the date and time of the first hearing in most cases. Again, a loss here, but another standard for deficient NTA-based motions to terminate that at least appears meetable. And that is Chavez Shalil, the Attorney General of the U.S. So there you have it. You're all caught up with the past week's published immigration cases. I'm Kevin A. Gregg, a partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, and this has been another episode of Immigration Review. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and rate and review us. Each review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, subscribe to Immigration Review wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what we do and want to become a patron of the show, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash immigration review or click on the link in the show notes. And if you're interested in an official Immigration Review CLE certificate for five credit hours, email me at kgreg at kktplaw.com with your full name and the episode numbers for the 10 shows you've listened to. Also, feel free to email me with questions, comments, or anything at all. And follow the show on Instagram and Facebook, at Immigration Review, and send us a tweet, at ImReview, that's I-M-M Review. I'll be back next Monday for a brand new discussion. Until then, I'm Kevin A. Gregg, bringing you the Immigration Review.